This is uh, Dr. Pedro Ramirez, Editor-in-Chief of the International Journal of uh, Gynecological Cancer. And today I have uh, the great pleasure of speaking with a dear friend and colleague, uh, Dr. Eduardo Bruera, who is a department chair in the Department of Palliative Rehabilitation and Integrative Medicine in the Division of Cancer Medicine at MD Anderson Cancer Center. Welcome, Eduardo. Thank you very much for having me here. Well, Eduardo, it's uh, obviously a very relevant and important topic to talk about the updates on palliative care and gynecologic oncology, particularly as we're going through this uh, um, pandemic uh, currently. And and certainly one of the things that I wanted to, to start in our discussion is that noting that over the past decade, there has been an increase in the integration of uh, palliative care and cancer care. And the focus has been to introduce these proactive care models through the course of care of the patient rather than just at the end of life. But, um, you know, obviously I want to start with uh, so some of the basics first. I wanted to start by asking uh, regarding your input as to the current status of training in medical school and residency and in fellowship as it pertains to palliative care. Are we making any strides in that regard? Uh, well, I think this is a very important, uh, a, a huge question because regrettably um, we are not making the progress that we would expect based on the evidence that exists about the difference that early palliative care makes on the physical, emotional uh, outcomes and even uh, quality of care outcomes uh, of our patients. So uh, there has been great difficulty in incorporating uh, palliative care training to medical school residency and even oncology fellowships. Uh, uh, regrettably, the majority of oncologists who are graduating this year in the United States would not have spent a single day in a, in a rotation regarding uh, palliative care. To a certain degree, the problem is structural. If you do not have uh, academic departments and faculty, then the process of, of educating um, the new generation becomes a little bit more erratic. So we are a little bit behind. Yeah. And Eduardo, as, as a follow-up to that, do you consider that internationally uh, they're doing any better in, for example, in Europe or in Latin America? There are regions in the world where things are going better. For example, Canadians have an undergraduate a curriculum mm. that is partially implemented also for reasons of faculty, but at least it is, is, it is inserted into the curricula of, of medical school. And um, several European countries are starting to implement uh, regular uh, training. I have to say that in general, palliative care was born out of wedlock in a sense that it was, mm -hmm. it was not born out of the mainstream academic medicine and therefore adoption of uh, palliative care by uh, medical schools uh, and academic institution took, uh, took a considerable longer time. The only country what I would say is fully inserted and absolutely well established is the United Kingdom. Mm. There uh, they do have it uh, for, for many, many years. And I'd say that if we were uh, going to take notes somewhere or if your program needs to take notes, I would, I would look that way. Okay. 
So now, Eduardo, I, I understand, obviously, there are several models uh, described for the delivery of palliative care, um, including the outpatient clinics, the inpatient consultation teams, um, acute palliative care delivery, community-based palliative care, and hospice care. And I was wondering if you can speak to what each of these settings might provide as a benefit uh, to patients and families. Wonderful. Thank you so much. Yes. Um, um, originally, palliative care developed in the community. When, when big uh, hospitals and cancer centers uh, felt that patients were not um, benefiting from any more disease-oriented treatment, mm -hmm. then those were picked up by community-based programs. So the early stages of palliative care and what was initially developed was community-based. The main problem with that is that's really late, and that's when treatment has already ended for the mm -hmm. disease. Later on, the next development were consult teams in acute care facilities and cancer centers. And actually, in that at that moment is when the name palliative care was coined initially in Canada and then in the rest of the world. And palliative care consult teams developed. Uh, the advantage of that is that it was a little bit earlier in the trajectory of illness, but still those patients were very, very ill. And the final stage of integration was to say when somebody has <clears throat> the development of a cancer that is not likely to be cured, then is when their oncologists can take advantage of uh, palliative and supportive care, and that is outpatient. So the highest level of development might be moving it into the outpatient center. Mm. The palliative care unit is the most sophisticated center to deliver inpatient palliative care to people who are very, very ill. And uh, it's developed, uh, unfortunately, with difficulty in the United States, but it's almost universal in other countries, such as Canada, the UK, and so on. And those units are an ICU for suffering. Mm. So hopefully, at some point, there will not be a single hospital that has an ICU that also does not have a PCU, since many of the really, really difficult deaths occur in hospitals, and that's what palliative care units can address. Mm -hmm. So now, um, getting into more of the specifics, and you know, the, the issue of communication is always an area of significant difficulty for for many. Um, what would you see as the best strategies for improving patient trust, uh, enabling uh, symptom control and strengthening coping and uh, guiding the decision making? That's, a, that's, a, that's also a very, very crucial question. The gynecological oncologists are unique. And we saw that at the early stages of development, uh, the fact that gynecological oncologists do surgery uh, as well as oncology treatment of their patients uh, creates a rapport with their patients that's very, very unique. Mm -hmm. And we saw that in our interactions, they were among the first to refer to us and the ones that were referring at, larger, at the largest percentage of referrals at MD Anderson came from GYN oncologists in their patients because they were um, acutely aware of the patient's difficulties, the physical, emotional difficulties, and so on. Mm -hmm. And one of the challenges in communication with those patients is that communicating the advanced stage of the disease and the incurability, it's uh, 
a difficult time, but it has enormous advantage later on. And so it does have some acute side effects, the same as um, an endoscopic procedure can cause some pain and discomfort right after, mm -hmm. or a shot of chemo can cause nausea and vomiting. Mm -hmm. A communication between the gynecological oncologist and the patient regarding the incurability will have some short-term uh, emotional distress on the patient and family, but it will set the communication in a wonderful way for medium to long-term um, uh, a course. And one of the challenges is to make sure that that communication is not accompanied by a lot of ifs and buts, that we are very, very direct, knowing that there's going to be some side effects short term, but there's going to be great advantage, medium to long term in the management. And so um, that is perhaps one of the most challenging parts, because we all want to make sure that our patients are as comfortable as possible. And sometimes uh, if we're a little bit more vague in the sharing of the information, um, unfortunately, the results will be like giving half dose of chemo mm -hmm. to avoid acute care vomiting, but then you will have no benefit long term or shortening a cystoscopy uh, because you want to cause less um, dysuria or pain. And then it defeats a little bit its purpose. So the, the trick is to deliver it full dose, understand there's going to be some side effects short term, but there's going to be great benefit long term. Yeah, definitely. Very, very important point. And you mentioned uh, emotional distress, which brings me to, to the next question, because I think a lot of times that may be bidirectional, both for patient and physician. And uh, I find that there's a struggle among many physicians that they often have a sense of, abandoning their, their patient when suggesting palliative care or hospice care. Um, what are your thoughts and what is your suggestion to resolve some of these issues? That's a, that's an enormously important issue because the, the, first of all, the, the gynecological oncologist has built a lot of rapport with that patient and their loved ones. And so there's, there's a couple of tricks. First is please start using the palliative care team, and actually in our hospital, we use the term supportive care for the outpatient area, so as to allow many of our colleagues to refer early their patients. Mm -hmm. So that if you refer them early and they are seeing the supportive and palliative care team in parallel with you, mm -hmm. they're also building rapport with that other team. Mm -hmm. So that's one thing that might prevent that sensation of distress and abandonment both on you as well as on the patient and family. The other point that is very important is talk them up. When I send someone to a gynecological oncologist or a surgeon, the first thing I told that patient is that this is the person I would like to operate on me and my family. They're extraordinary, they're wonderful, and, and they're much better than me at doing this problem, fixing this problem for you, Mr. Smith. Mm -hmm. So talking up that colleague uh, gives reassurance to the patient and family, that you're putting them in the hands of someone who can resolve their problems better than you might normally. Mm -hmm. And so that this kind of an escalation in the quantity and quality of care they're going to get. So my advice would be those two points. Get them involved earlier on when you're not going to be transferring the care and also talk them up. Yeah. And, and Eduardo, uh, you know, when, when considering that discussion with, with a patient on, on palliative care issues, um, 
is, is it best to to approach the patient as a team or do things go better as a single individual addressing these issues in general i think that when the report has been quite good there's rarely a need to get uh, more people to have uh, an initial conversation with the the patient and the family uh, in a minority of cases things are going to be very complex some people may have cultural religious issues personal issues trust issues and they may have uh, more difficulty in other cases it's completely appropriate that we seek a little bit of help from a supportive and palliative care doctor and other team members because uh, if i'm a gynecological oncologist and i never received appropriate training in this field, mm -hmm. uh, I might not really feel that confident uh, having that, that, that conversation alone. It would be like going to the OR to fix a gynecological problem, but knowing that I might need a urologist or someone mm -hmm. else uh, close by, because there are some things that are going to show up there that I might feel less confident and comfortable. And therefore, um, I would say that in those cases, please do not hesitate to call to your outpatient clinic or to your inpatient bedside, uh, a colleague from palliative and supportive care. So you can have that conversation uh, jointly because that's what they do for a living and they can support you. Mm -hmm. And you, you mentioned uh, uh, religion and, and, you know, often there are cultural or religious influences uh, that may impact how the patient views palliative care and hospice care. And, and certainly many times the, the, those views are very, very different uh, depending on culture and religion. Uh, what, what do you recommend as the, the best strategy to approach this? Right. Well, that's a, that's a, that's an enormous challenge in, in, in some, fortunately in a minority of cases, but it is, it can be a, a, a phenomenal, a phenomenal challenge. I would say this first, the most important thing to know is that um, from the perspective of all the major religions in the world, um, um, there is no um, uh, religious need to subject yourself to mechanical ventilation, intubation, dialysis, or any treatment that uh, is not really uh, uh, medically, medically indicated. So many times what occurs is that uh, some family may have conflict, a religious or spiritual conflict mm -hmm. that might many times be resolved by, by talking with their, um, with their religious uh, um, group with a religious leader mm -hmm. uh, many times hospitals also have some chaplains that allows them to to have some conversations and perhaps the most important thing is that when when patients and families make a a, a determination a decision is different from being biomedical mm -hmm. where, where we decide regarding uh, a specific anti-neoplastic intervention or mm, pain intervention or constipation intervention is highly based on levels of evidence. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the family and the patient react in a way that is contextual. And the cultural context and the religious context mm -hmm. is what impacts their decision. Uh, and so we, I think what I usually do is two things. First, I try to understand a little bit the religious context and the family context, and then I personalized because not 
all the people who are a part of a certain social group or religious group uh, will share all the aspects of that group. Mm -hmm. So moving from understanding the context to asking the person and give them the freedom to, to make decisions that might or might not be aligned mm -hmm. with their social and religious context is, uh, is sometimes a way to progressively resolve this. In many cases, uh, there might be a need to have two or three conversations. Mm -hmm. uh, sometimes uh, the first conversation, they might go home and say, well, um, let, you know, you can you know, recommend it. Uh, talk to your religious leader and have a conversation. Talk to the family members. If there's a family member who is reluctant and wants everything done, bring them next time. Mm -hmm. So having this conversation early sometimes gives us the opportunity to have it two or three times until there is consensus. Yeah. Now, Ultimately, yeah. I'd like to say one point uh -huh. that is, please never feel bad about uh, the patient and the family uh, still wanting to get, you know, everything, resuscitation, ICU and so on. I've been doing this for many, many, many years, and I still have a four to six percent failure in discussing uh, why a treatment might be more harmful rather than helpful. So it's important to not feel uh, bad about not being able to align the, the patient's um, uh, escalation of care with, with, with what the evidence shows or what, your, what your, your own goals would be. Because in some cases, it's the same as in many cancers. We just can't, we just can't cure that communication. Yeah. No, those are really very important tips, uh, and uh, and I'm glad actually that we we cover that point, and and this is a, a, another uh, element that I think often is a sensitive issue, and that's the the issue with many patients regarding prognostic awareness. Um, so my question is, when is the the right time to discuss prognosis with a patient, and do patients generally want to know what their uh, realistic uh, expectation should be and 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 how do you deal best with the different responses by patients and families to the reality of the prognosis of the disease yeah yeah that's that's uh, that's one of the big that was one of the big challenges we have in medicine uh we are diagnostician and from a therapeutics perspective, wonderful. From the prognosis perspective, we are not always that perfect. And also as therapies change, prognosis has a trend to become a little bit more blurred. Mm -hmm. So it, it is on one hand, uh, an issue of, um, it, it's, it's, it's a medical practice challenge. From another perspective, it is a huge communication challenge. Mm -hmm. And what, what we know about, um, about uh, awareness of, of prognosis is that regrettably um, the majority of patients who are having progressive incurable cancer have uh, unrealistic perception about the mm -hmm. goals of their treatment and their prognosis. So more than half of the patients that we see on a daily basis who have uh, a, 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 a prognosis of uh, almost certain um, end of life from their cancer um, have the perception that the treatment uh, objective is to cure the cancer. Mm. Uh, and so we know that 
unrealistic perception is very common. And there's three main reasons, probably. Uh, and uh, the first is that the patient wasn't really told or there were too many ifs or buts in the communication. The second might be that the patients were told, but they were just unable to comprehend and they get confused between what a response means and what a cure means. And so they did not understand it. And the third might be simply that there is psychological denial and that the person is told in total clarity, mm. but for psychological reasons, they are completely unable to accept the prognosis. So a couple of things that might be helpful. Uh, the first thing is uh, what we uh, discussed a little bit before about not not doing a lot of ifs or vats and the uh, um, early, early disclosure of prognosis. Whenever I know the disclosure, the, the prognosis, whenever I know <clears throat> it might be the right time to share it. The second thing that helps a lot is if it is possible, trying to get a relative, trying to get a relative who might be waiting in the waiting room or who might not be coming, having that person come, somebody the patient trusts and loves, mm -hmm. who can participate in the conversation and discuss it, uh, because that will uh, open up, it will establish um, a, a level of communication between the patient and their loved one that will allow them to continue processing this very, very difficult information. Uh, and with regards to do, do people want, well, more, more than 80% of, of patients really uh, want to have certainty about prognosis. Um, the same as more than 80% of us want to know the gender of the baby that is coming, mm. but 20% don't. So not 100% of us like to have some level of certainty about prognosis. Some uh, prefer not to know exactly all the details. And what I normally do is to explore um, how much they know, how much they really uh, would like to know. And most of the time, the vast majority of time, we'll, I'll hear, I would like to know as much as possible, uh, but occasionally we'll hear, I'd like to know as little as possible. Mm -hmm. And in that case, we try to provide them as little as possible. There's some information we have to give them, but we don't necessarily have to share um, all the information. And sometimes they might choose a spokesperson, mm -hmm. my wife, my son, and then we can we can work with them. Yeah. And, and one, one thing that I see often and understandably so is, uh, particularly in patients in the late stages of their disease, is the issue of coping, coping with symptoms of depression, emotional support. And how should one address that uh, element in the patients and also often in, in the family members? Yes, that's a, that's one of the big challenges because it can be um, it can be uh, uh, a little bit time consuming, and therefore, what I would say is two things: um, if you notice that someone is not coping well, that's a good reason to refer them to supportive and palliative care to help you out, mm -hmm. to help you out with uh, providing them. Uh, a little bit of uh, better coping uh, tools. Uh, what we know is that uh, as our patients become ill and they are having this enormous stress, 
they will have a trend to cope with their repertoire. And their repertoire is kind of fixed for many, many, many years. So people who have a trend to be a little bit more depressed, they will sink a little bit more into sadness. People who had a trend to be a bit more angry, they will get upset with their doctors, their families, and so on. People who are deniers, they will say nothing is going to happen, everything's going to be fine. So there is an already um, inborn system of coping we have. And then there are the more maladaptive ones. People might start drinking, might start taking too many painkillers, might start, um, you know, break, breaking relationships that they desperately need uh, to cope into the end of life. So I think early identification of people who are uh, not uh, coping very well with the emotional aspects is nice because it will um, minimize their maladaptive coping and also help them preserve those relationships that are going to be so important as they become less able to take care of themselves. Yeah, that's really important, fascinating uh, points. Now, I wanted to ask you, I'm, I'm interested on the impact of terminal illness on, on caregivers. And, and often, you know, certainly we focus so much on, on the patient uh, but are there known effects, uh, particularly physical or psychological, to the caregiver when attending to the needs of a, of a dying family member? Oh, absolutely. That's a that's an enormous uh, enormous burden. During the first year after the death of a spouse, the mortality of that person is double, <clears throat> and so there are not only um, not only issues of enormous emotional distress, but they can even get physically ill. They can neglect their own health. Partially, uh, a cancer death occurs in the early 60s, mid 60s. This spouse of that patient, who is the one who delivers most of the care, is about the same age. And at that age, um, the health might need some attention and there's a lot of neglect that goes on. As a patient becomes ill and we say, uh, we're sending you home, uh, Mr. Smith, that caregiver's uh, responsibility includes the administration of all the medication on a regular basis, mm. making decision about when the patient needs a rescue extra medication of any nature, all the elimination, bowel movements, uh, urine, all the hygiene of that patient and mobilization, mm. as well as all the emotional support of that patient. And if the patient is going to die at home with hospice or without hospice, they will overwhelmingly be alone with a person at the moment of death. Mm. So this is, this is a lot of enormous uh, pressure. And so there has been a little bit of a, of a misconception uh, that has uh, led to have people feel that dying in a hospital is always uh, wrong. Well, if you are a, a caregiver of a patient and you have extended family, you can hire people, you have resources, then you can mitigate a little bit the impact of that, uh, of that death on, on you. But if you don't have those resources and if you as a doctor sense that there is this tremendous amount of, of claudication coming up, then uh, bringing the patient into the hospital uh, is, is very useful. Uh, in the past, the end of life of many of these patients 
could be done in what is called inpatient hospice. Mm -hmm. Regrettably, the United States uh, has seen a ma massive privatization of hospices that are now mostly private companies, and the um, <clears throat> revenue mm -hmm. of inpatient hospice is much worse. And so in only 10 years, the uh, daily census of hospices in the United States has gone from almost 20% of the patients to 1.5% of the patients. Mm -hmm. So basically, inpatient hospice is not a very um, reasonable option at this point. So I would say uh, when a, a relative is, is having this enormous pressure, uh, providing uh, as much support as possible to educate them on the medical aspects, on the psychological aspects, uh, and then um, knowing that at some point they might not be able to cope and the patient might need inpatient care is also quite fair. So, Eduardo, you mentioned cost and, and, uh, and revenues and hospice care, and I was reading that it is estimated that in 2019, $154 billion were spent on care for people with cancer in the United States, and that 31% of that was on the patient's uh, last year of life. So with that in mind, uh, where do we stand today as it pertains to coverage for palliative care, and uh, what does the future look like for the cost of palliative care? And that's, a, that's, a, that's such a wonderful question. What we have learned, uh, and that is actually not new information, it's about, amazingly, we published the first paper on this 22 years ago. <laughs> so <laughs> the information is, is coming along, but now I think there's multiple uh, reviews and systematic reviews. And what happens is the following. Um, the investment in, uh, in having very robust uh, palliative care programs is uh, an enormously uh, financially beneficial investment. <clears throat> and the reason for that is <clears throat> the complexity of the American healthcare system. If you <clears throat> provide <clears throat> treatment to a patient, your hospital, well, might recover 50% of what it bills, might recover a little bit more, <clears throat> but there's going to be a lot of treatments that are going to be expensive, including ICU, including MRIs, chemotherapy, all kinds of treatments mm -hmm. close to the end of life that are not going to be <clears throat> um, recovered. What the hospice and palliative care team does is it dramatically reduces the cost of those interventions uh, by reducing the, the number of those. And, and therefore, what it does is it has an enormous beneficial supplementary effect on mm -hmm. what the gynecological oncologist has done by reducing a lot of those costs uh, near the end of life. So um, there is a great advantage in having those teams involved as a way of um, reducing the uh, unreimbursable costs. And that's why a number of organizations that operate as, as um, um, you know, a, a, you know, a, a, a full healthcare organizations like Kaiser Permanente and mm -hmm. even the veterans have invested very heavily. The problem is when executives and executives not always read the data very carefully, interpret downstream revenue, and they say, well, if this person gives this or that treatment, 
we can build so much. But they not always pay a lot of attention to the back end uh, cost of those treatments. And so I would say uh, that if you, as a gynecological oncologist, team up with a palliative care, supportive care team, the financial results of that are going to be enormously beneficial. There's a lot of information on that because you will deliver all the therapies that are necessary. And at some point, when those become less necessary, that team will, by communicating with the patient and family, by arranging community care and so on, will reduce the cost of care that otherwise uh, would not be unfortunately reimbursable. Yeah. So I have a, a couple more questions for you. Um, I know you have been extremely busy in this new era of uh, COVID-19. Um, so I wanted to ask you, what have been the major changes that you have had to make in palliative care um, as a result of uh, our new practice under COVID-19? And uh, do you foresee uh, changing future practice in palliative care as a result of what you've learned from this era? Yes, thank you so much, Pedro. That's a, that's a, that's a very appropriate uh, and necessary um, a point of reflection for all of us uh, who, are, who are working in this field. We, we have seen um, in a very short period of time that institutions had the need to uh, minimize um, the um, initially the ICU um, admissions because those became absolutely overwhelmed in many areas of the country. And they're still uh, unclear as to how bad they're going to get in, in, in the south, uh, in the south uh, regions. And they're, they're already getting overwhelmed in many of our, of our regions uh, in the country. So what what palliative care teams have uh, been involved on has been on um, um, being um, uh, preventing uh, escalation in those patients who are being seen as outpatient, inpatients, or in the emergency center, and they're coming up with uh, um, uh, problems that are associated with the beginning of end of life that in the past were frequently. Um, not always addressed uh, rapidly and aggressively enough, and this patient ended up in the ICU. So at MD Anderson, we have seen a, a, a very, you know, unfortunately, one of the silver linings has been that has been a, a reduction in the number of patients who need to access the uh, ICU close to the end of life. Mm -hmm. uh, it also has prompted an understanding that when a patient gets admitted to the hospital, and it's not necessarily the ICU, but it's unstable clinically. Uh, have we had those conversations about prognosis, about um, uh, breaking bad news and planning uh, end of life care already happened or not? And of course, in the majority of cases, we noticed that they were not happening. That was everywhere in the, in the nation. And now uh, there has been an urgency in uh, increasing those conversations. And the, the, the third, and, and of course, the, the supportive and palliative care teams have been uh, in the middle of that because they can, they can help have those conversations reasonably uh, rapidly. And the third point that has had a, an impact has been uh, the development of virtual care. And so the, the need to communicate with patients using video, um, initially at the beginning of the, 
of the uh, um, epidemic. Uh, many programs uh, in the country used whatever, and that's what we did at Anderson. We used any platform the patient had that we could uh, enhance mm -hmm. just a telephone, that we could have them see our face, we could see their face, we could witness is each other physical and, and, and fa facial expression was, was very useful. And uh, we have, uh, I think, learned in a very short period of time an awful lot about uh, how to address uh, which are the patients who really respond very, very well mm -hmm. to video uh, uh, contacts, how many contacts can be done that way. And it is our impression that due to the fact that it reduces exposure to both, to the patient and to the healthcare professional, uh, both in the inpatient and in the outpatient setting, it is very likely that mm, this will remain, this will continue, and perhaps uh, us, we are not um, engineered as hospitals to provide the numbers of patients who need care with appropriate social distancing mm -hmm. and protection. Those will become uh, pretty well a regular feature in the delivery of uh, supportive and palliative care. We will continue. There has been some advantages. If I see a patient today, I would have to see them mask to mask and with eye shield and so on. If they see me on video, they see me with no mask. If they see me today, they will see me alone. If they see me by video, they will have their family with them. Mm -hmm. uh, and those are uh, um, considerable uh, potential uh, you know, benefits of, of having this type of care. The third one is uh, we track every day patients seen in the inpatient and outpatient area who rapidly after we see them, become uh, COVID positive. And mm -hmm. then uh, what that tells us is uh, to which point did we have close encounters or direct encounters with a healthcare professional that now uh, needs to be tested and has to be removed from mask to mask encounters. And there's uh, quite a few of them. And so if you want to preserve your clinicians uh, enhancing the virtual care in your team might be very wise. So Eduardo, one, uh, one last question I want to ask you is I know you're, you're busy and you have to go soon. Um, what, what would you consider have been the, the greatest and most impacting findings in, in research and palliative care in the last several years? Wonderful. Well, that's, that's one of the challenges we have. We, we regrettably do not have these massive support from federal grants. Uh, we do not have a single study section dealing with, with palliative care at NIH. So I get grants from three, four, five different you know, study sections and special emphasis panels. So this has been um, a, a difficult journey. Also, it hasn't been interesting to industry. And so as a consequence, the, uh, the engine behind a lot of the new uh, oncology discoveries have not been that uh, accessible to, to supportive and palliative care. Mm. On the other hand, there have been a number of, of very important um, um, developments that um, are making our patients way more comfortable than they were. And those include, uh, first, the concept of 
rotating opioids for pain, not using always the same opioid and keeping it, and then managing side effects with more drugs, but getting rid of the drug and replacing it for another. The resurgence of methadone, it's a complex opioid. We always say that all the other opioids any gynecological oncologist should feel totally free to use because they are all like little Toyotas or Toyotas or Hondas. But methadone is a Lamborghini, and therefore it can do extraordinary things, but it can also be very dangerous to drive. So, but knowing that it exists and that a rotation for one of your patients to that might be helpful, that has been another uh, big uh, important development. We have improved our way to deliver care for patients with dyspnea. That is one of the most uh, difficult drugs. We know now that some short-acting opiates, some corticosteroids, and high-flu oxygen are making uh, things way more comfortable for them. We have developed ways to assess the, prefer the prevalence of delirium very early. Uh, brain failure that is almost the canary in the mind and starts to tell us that things are going bad is frequently diagnosed too, too late, but we have systems that allow us to diagnose that very early in the trajectory of the, of the patient's illness and therefore um, prevent further deterioration. And the last one I think that, that I, could, I could point is that our communication skills have improved. Uh, if, even from when I started practicing palliative care, uh, <laughs> there were many things that we didn't know about how to communicate with our patients and families. And so I have changed. I have learned so much about how to communicate. And now, of course, the younger generation learns that uh, very quickly. So there have been improvements in communication that help the patients and families. Eduardo, thank you so much. Uh, this has been, uh, as always, a, a great opportunity Uh, to learn and uh, always uh, enjoy so much speaking with you. Uh, I want to thank you also for all that you do for our patients here at MD Anderson. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. I've always been a great fan of gynecological oncologists because <laughs> of the fact that you build relationships with your patients that we as medical oncologists rarely do. <laughs> thank you so much. <laughs> thank you.